feeling paralyzed by social anxiety, this mounting sense of feeling like a failure, just like his father told him he would be. Over the next few sessions, he let the information trickle out about his escalating loss of control over various mind-altering substances. The one drink too many on a Friday night, the tincture of cocaine to get the workday started, the uh, medical marijuana that helped him to sleep at night. He shared all this matter of fact, no big deal. He both wanted and didn't want me to know at the same time that he was drowning in this pool of comforters that temporarily made the pain go away. The day he was enter rehab, he decided to have one last numbing session before he'd have to say goodbye to these chemical friends. Uh, but instead, his actual friends never got the chance to say goodbye. Today, we're going to look at how the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks to the experience of addictions. We're going to have to engage more than our intellect, but seek an awareness on a deep level of desire, impulse, and worship. To do that, we need the Spirit's help to understand, so let's pray. Lord, I do ask that you would speak to our hearts. Use your Spirit to make alive truths which often seem so far away, hard for us to grasp when we are wrestling with life on life's terms. Um, Lord, we need you to illuminate these truths for us. So would you be here this morning speaking through your word, which has power to change our lives. In your name we pray, amen. I know many in here don't know me. Uh, my name's John. I'm one of the ruling elders over in West Philly. As Luke mentioned, I'm also a psychiatrist uh, in private practice and oversee a, a local biblical counseling network. A couple caveats uh, before we start. One, I know many of you come week in, week out, longing to be fed by expositional preaching. I can't pretend to fill those shoes. Um, secondly, I'm not used to preaching. This is really the first time. Well, actually, now it's the fourth time. The first service was at West Philly. The second time I told the second service, you know, I feel like I'm plagiarizing myself. And then I just got done talking with your Sunday school teacher, so this is the fourth time, and I feel like the headmaster is going to come and lock me up, so. Um, but to help you organize this message today, uh, there's going to be like three main sections. The first is going to be a picture of addictions. We're going to look at differences, similarities, patterns. Uh, secondly, we're going to touch upon the challenges of applying the gospel to this experience of addictions. And finally, we're going to endeavor to find a way through and away from addictions through this gospel path. C.S. Lewis once said in an address that when a layman has to preach a sermon, I think he's most likely to be useful or even interesting if he starts with where he is himself, not so much presuming to instruct as comparing notes. So I want to start with a confession. The picture of addictions starts with me. Very often, if not always, during a sermon, I struggle to keep my thoughts focused on what's being preached. My thoughts frequently fade away. Uh, I start listening to the sermon, but pretty quick they're going off into fantasy, imagining if I ever had to preach what I would have to say. 
Now, I might phrase things differently. What kind of impact or response I'd be going for? This kind of reverie reflects a long-standing, deep desire in myself to be liked, to be thought well of by others, to be esteemed among my peers. I am addicted to the praise of men. My educated guess is that I'm not the only one in this room that can be so easily distracted by a thought life filled with these self-referential daydreams. We can be engaged outwardly for stretches of time, but when the dust settles, the last thought before going to bed, the first thoughts when we wake up, what we think about when we're in the shower, or when we're just sitting idly somewhere, these are the window into our hearts. It'll be different for everyone, for many, it's hedonic, something that brings, brings uh, pleasure. For others, it's fear-based, trying to avoid threats and potential pain of many forms. My heart has shown me that what I crave and feed upon is this picture of being admired by others. Now, some of you are rightly saying, wait a minute, being addicted to a drug or alcohol it's a lot different than something that might be better described as pride or narcissism. <clears throat> to begin to talk about this experience, it'll be necessary to first set about defining the term itself. It used to be that when people said the word addict, the image conjured was one who had a moral failing, a dreg of society, indulging in the passions of the flesh. This has moved to talk about addictions of all types being diseases. These are treated with compassion in a medical setting and often with the help of a 12-step group like, like AA. Well, I, I plan to address these, dif these differences and these perspectives in a little bit, but I want to use a working definition. This is borrowed from Ed Welsh in his book, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, where he defines it as bondage to the rule of a substance, activity, or state of mind which then becomes the center of life, defending itself from the truth so that even bad consequences don't bring repentance and leading to further estrangement from God. There are similarities with this definition in the medical one, um, where there's a focus on use despite bad consequences and escalating use over time, but defined in this way, it puts addictions squarely on the map of the moral dimension. This is something that addictions treatment has actually tried to get away from. They see it as a relic of our puritanical past, something that's no longer helpful. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you, at the very mention of sin and addictions, are tempted to tune out and fast forward right to the benediction. You've heard it before. It just seems to be one more spiritual browbeating coming your way. No thanks. But while a medicalized definition would seem to be more compassionate by taking us off of the moral hot seat and removing a modicum of guilt, you'll see in the end that this does not go far enough to address the deep work God would call us towards, and it misses a redemptive opportunity. At the same time, I want to recognize that much harm has been done by even well-meaning Christians approaching this issue moralistically. They add to the shame, the guilt, and the burden. This is especially true after hearing a sermon like this. I want to point out there's something both broad 
and common to the experience of addiction. There's also some very important individual differences between the various forms of addiction, as well as between the exact expression for every individual struggling with addictions, even in the same kind of addiction. No two are the same, and yet there's something that resonates in the hearts of all strugglers. As we look at how the gospel maps on to this experience, I'm aiming at this common thread strung through the hearts of all fellow addicts. But what may some of these struggles look like? Here we are on a Sunday morning. Several of you are feeling penitent from Saturday night. Some of you drank too much. Others exercised little control at the buffet line with friends. Some of you binged on Netflix, while others burned their retinas, binging on pornography in the late hours of the night when no one else was around. Some bought too much on Amazon. Some increased their gambling debt. And some crossed that line again with your boyfriend or girlfriend for the umpteenth time. Others are not penitent because you may not realize how you've been captured by your passion for work, for ingesting news or social media, for exercise, for success, for bargain hunting, for sleep, for chocolate, for coffee. This gets me in trouble in West Philly. And for the Eagles. <laughs> or my household, it's, come on, just five more minutes till I finish this game of Fortnite. Well, to help us get an even a more detailed picture of addictions, I'm going to put up a diagram. It shows some common patterns as people battle addictions. It's not an authoritative sequence, but I found it really helpful when I first saw it in a lecture by Christian psychologist Dr. Phil Monroe. It starts with, what, with being what one may call clean or abstinent. There may be vows to never do this again. This was the last time the pain from the last slip-up is still quite fresh. But then, you encounter a trigger. This could be an association, such as a smell, a location that reminds you of the object of your addiction. It doesn't feel the same to eat pizza without beer, to have your morning coffee without a cigarette. It might be the feeling of loneliness. As you'll see later, you may not even be aware of what this trigger is. This then leads to having tempting thoughts. We begin to visualize going back to that idol. We may recall past memories, or we might think of new encounters with it. We're doing this all the while while we feel our defenses are still up and we're, we're in control. This then may lead to what's abbreviated there, SUD, seemingly unimportant decisions taking a different route home that goes past the liquor store, getting undressed in front of the mirror, looking up on Google Images names just to see what comes up. By themselves, they may not be engaging in sin, but they help to approximate the steps that get you closer, giving you the illusion that you're still in control. Pretty soon, you're indulging in it again, telling yourself at first that you can handle it. It isn't, it isn't as bad as before. That's better to get it over with than daydreaming about it all the time. Pretty much any rationalization will serve as a permission-giving belief 
But now that we've indulged, once again, we feel defeated. There's no use in resisting anymore. Why not keep going, right? But after a while, the guilt overwhelms the allure of sin. We begin to just feel bad. With many addictions, we can spend a good amount of time here feeling real small, often feeding right back into having these defeated interpretations. We may even question our status as a Christian. We certainly don't feel lovable, and instead we feel something has to make up for this, so we engage in acts of penance. You exercise more. You fast from sweets or television. You spend extra time in prayer. Again, not bad in themselves, but they're used to make yourselves feel clean until you're back on track in abstinence again. So now, with these pictures of addiction in place, we'll finally come to our passage to help us lay bare the common experience of addiction and examine why it could be challenging to apply the gospel. Now, I know you've already heard a message on this very passage from your own Pastor Luke, uh, and indeed, this is a passage that is perhaps most quoted in relation to the addiction experience, so much so that it's become near cliche. But again, I'm not seminary trained, so rather than show you how Zephaniah speaks to us today, I'm going for the lower hanging fruit of Romans 7. But we can build upon the textual analysis that, uh, you know, from Pastor Luke to dive a little bit deeper into its application. But I want to start with this for another reason. As disorienting as this passage may feel in trying to track which Paul is he referring to there, there's also something immediately relatable to the Christian addiction experience. Paul's describing an experience of both knowing the Lord and at the same time seeing sin working against this better spiritual judgment. He says in verse 15, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. How many relate to this confession? We can read scripture. In fact, we can become experts in the Christian self-help literature and relevant biblical texts on the topic of addictions and not feel it has a meaningful impact in our own struggle. For Christians wrestling with what, what we call besetting sins. It's nearly universal to have the Teflon gospel experience. The word of God can seem perilous. It doesn't alter the destructive patterns. It adds to the cycle of hope followed by failure. It slides right off. It doesn't stick. You know the correct theology, but you see another law working within you and winning the battle every time. You can feel divided, as though there's even some one or something else pulling the strings. We see in verses 16 to 20 how Paul personifies sin, and we get the feeling that there's even more than one person in the room with him. There appears to be something external to him, outside of his conscious control. Though Paul is not saying this, others would describe this struggle more like a disease rather than a matter of a conscious rebellion. And there's some good reasons for this perceived helplessness. 
and why the just-say-no approach has been extremely ineffective. For one, the phrase, the gospel, has become too familiar and shorthand. It's lost much of its specificity and personal relevance. In the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, people believe that the cure for many ailments, from poison ivy to psoriasis to the common cold, was to use Windex, an ammonia-based household cleaner. Got an itch, spray some Windex on it. In the same way, we use words, the gospel, as a cure-all, without unpacking what this may mean and how it maps on for each individual specifically and uniquely. Instead, the word is used as an incantation that's supposed to work some kind of magic as we wave it over ours and other people's lives. Instead, it seems anemic in its ability to affect any change. Another reason that people feel more like they've been invaded by a virus rather than making continued choices to go in the, down this path of misery has to do with our inadequate view of sin. Many think of sin as an observable wrong behavior or even identifiable inner desires. Our will and intentions usually play a central role in this mental picture. Most people, Christians and Mankind alike would feel there'd be something unfair about being held responsible for things that are outside of our conscious control, or even counter to a desire that's more consistent with how we view ourselves. But this isn't cons consistent with Scripture. We see in the Old Testament how offerings were required for unintentional sins. We see that we are guilty if we break even the slightest part of the law. We see how in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin has affected us thoroughly and totally in both our intentional and unintentional actions. There's an interesting experiment in the addictions literature that lays bare this fragile notion of conscious control. Dr. Anna Rose Childress at the University of Pennsylvania took two groups of people, those who were addicted to cocaine, but abstinent for some period of time, and those who had never been exposed to cocaine at all. And they put them in a machine where you could look at their brain activity in, in real time. While they're being monitored, they presented them with pictures. Some they presented neutral objects, chairs, tables, um, and they can see these, these images. But interspersed, they would show images related to cocaine use, a crack pipe, a tourniquet, a razor blade. But those images were shown for only about 33 milliseconds long, not long enough for them to register in their conscious awareness. The subjects couldn't recall ever having been shown these images. But lo and behold, when they presented these images, the parts of the brain that observed the reward pathway would light up like fireworks, but only in the brains of those who were, had been addicted to cocaine, not in those who had never been uh, exposed to it. The interesting finding, however, is that they would ask them during these times what they were feeling. Some would say, you know, I was having cravings, something they had felt like cravings, but then others who didn't say they had cravings would say, you know, I just had the thought to take a walk in the old neighborhood where I used to hang out when I was you know, in my days of drug use. They wouldn't say they had cravings. They said they were thinking about taking this step. You see, even before 
they were aware of their desire center being triggered, their mind had begun to plot the steps which could lead them to acquire cocaine. It's as though their pleasure-reward center needed to get past the conscious guard at the gate, and it knew the less direct route it needed to take. Sobering. Indeed, there is an iceberg tip of a self that you are fully aware of, but there's much more that lies below the water level. Scripture speaks about our heart, which I believe Pastor Dwight had unpacked a bit in a previous message. There's a lot to say. I won't go into that now. But I think even in this concept of the heart, we tend to think about it as our inner thoughts that others can't see. Uh, but it's actually much more than this. It involves our thoughts, but it also just about every mental operation, such as our will, our desires, our longings, known and unknown, conscious and unconscious, all get expressed animated by our hearts. One way to think about the heart is as your core worship center. We were created as worshiping beings. Either we were worshiping our creator as we were designed to do, or we are worshiping some counterfeit replacement God in our heart's rebellion. And in our addictions, our heart is indeed playing the starring role in misguiding our worship. You see, it is true, you have a disease, but it's much worse than the concept of addictions as disease. In the latter, you think you're mostly okay. A normal heart, normal lungs, even normal brain faculties like mental calculation and memory, they're all working fine except this ravage of disease on the part of the brain that regulates reward, that makes you come back for just one more. No, your condition is exponentially worse. At one time, you were created, okay, perfectly, made to love, trust, worship your creator. But when the, tra the Trojan sin, Trojan horse of sin entered this world, it corrupted your entire operating system. Every thought, every desire, every inclination was now reprogrammed to view yourself at the center of your existential universe. Instead of worshiping our creator, we now call upon creation to bend the knee to us. In our, in our attempts to be served, we wind up serving these false gods. It's a pathway to bondage. Addictions is bondage. And because the heart affects every aspect of our minds, it's affected our very understanding of ourselves. I'm going to try a brief experiment. Close your eyes. In two seconds, I'm going to ask you to pay attention to the very first thoughts that come to mind. Who are you? Now open your eyes. What were those first thoughts? When you have to think about your core identity, there are several aspects you might think about. Your physical self, perhaps it's a role like a parent or friend or pastor. Maybe it's your occupation. It might even be evaluative statements like worthless or open-minded. 
Some of you may not even notice these first immediate thoughts because you're observing self blurted out, I'm a child of God. Regardless, there's a notion of who you are that you carry around and your heart knows this. And to lead you down the path of addictions, it often needs to deceive this self-awareness. Remember the experiment with the cocaine addicts? In fact, self-deception has been called the gateway sin. The sin that makes all other sins seem more palatable. More insidious is how the heart can even use knowledge of the gospel to lead one down the path of sin. This is what I refer to as co-opting the gospel. Instead of the good news getting a hold of us and changing us from the inside out, the heart uses gospel awareness to make us think we have internalized this. Instead, it's another piece of knowledge that's folded into this self-concept that's being ever constructed without God at the center. We've co-opted a theological principle to serve the ultimate desires of a sinful heart. So, if the part of me that is aware is so corrupted by this sin virus that it's become a slave to the desires of the heart, what hope is there? Why am I using a cognitive medium, a sermon, to tell you that you can't just think your way out of addictions? That at each step, the sinful heart is folding this head knowledge into its aim to continue to serve itself. How do we move on to this gospel path of freedom? I think we're ready for the Pauline war cry, where he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the Sunday school class shouts in unison, Jesus! That's right. Even Paul exclaims, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. No, Paul was not shouting in defeated exasperation, but rather in the midst of an existential struggle that's tied to a confident hope. What's even more astonishing is that Paul proclaims, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This seems too good to be true. How can we go from being in a pit of misery, hooked and enslaved to the passions of the world, unable to break free from the centrifugal force of sin, pulling our hearts ever inward to freedom and escape, seemingly getting off scot-free? Let's not just take a hit off the Jesus pipe for a quick gospel fix but let's unpack what Paul is seeing here. Because the truths that Paul sees will be the same truths necessary for you to behold as you battle your addictions. Paul is what some may call woke. Like Neo seeing the Matrix for the first time, Paul's eyes were figuratively and literally opened after being met by Jesus on the Damascus Road. He was immediately aware of his heart of rebellion as Jesus calls him out. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Though he had spent, though Paul had spent a lifetime building up his reputation, that currency of his identity he once depended on plummeted in value as he proclaims in Philippians, 
Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul no longer sees his worth in his resume. No longer was he in the game of self-approvement and self-promotion. Indeed, only through this radical re-identification could one of the most influential people in all of history be able to say, as he does in 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. In our passage today, he is both aware of the enemy within himself, but he also recognizes that this enemy was delivered a mortal death blow when God sent his son into the world to take on flesh, to take on all of our sin and be crucified, sacrificed in our place. This put an end to the power of sin over us. It makes it even possible to pursue something other than our self-oriented gain. As he says in 2 Corinthians 5, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. How does he make this connection that someone else's death could affect this change in himself. Because it was the very heart of this sin in himself that was also crucified. To be united with Christ is to be united with him in his death. In Galatians 2, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now would live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And there it is, the realization of a new identity. And not just a new and improved version of Paul. No, he had the actual bona fide Christ living in him. As he places his faith in the Son of God and accepts this great exchange of Christ's death for his sins, in return, this faith allows him to have the heart of Christ in place of the sinful heart of flesh. He now has power through the Spirit to not pursue the desires of his sinful nature. And how about you? Let's take a look at how this new identity in Christ may play out through the addictive cycle. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's go back through the cycle and see the possible escape routes that are found in the gospel which can break this addictive cycle. You'll notice that I've partitioned the cycles into three phases, which I call preparing, fighting, and recovering. You also notice that enveloping the whole process is community. Because addictions has made us skilled at lying to ourselves and others. We need to bring lies into the light. We need others to help us to do that. We need to be a community of believers that can do that well. Through the cycle, I'm going to try to point out the different tactics that we might need at the different times. Much of the work that you need to do happens before the actual tempting event occurs. 
Notice that in that verse in uh, Corinthians, Paul says, with the temptation. He assumes and expects that it will come. Be ready. And being ready for it will be like turning the lights on in a room when you've been boxing your enemy in the dark. The fight will still come, but you'll feel less helpless in it, uh, when you can see all the punches that are coming at you. We need to prepare for the self-deception, for the lies, and we need to prepare to be able to tell the truth. In general, the first step is to acknowledge that there is an enemy within. Own it. Do not assume that the best version of yourself or the one that you're most mindful of is the main force at work. Respect your enemy, which happens to be you. Like Paul, consider yourself the chief of all sinners. Open your eyes to the deceptive power of the sinful nature. Be ready for the direct assault on your self-awareness to be deceived so that a host of sins can enter through that gate. In 12-step groups, this is often captured in the first step to acknowledge that one is powerless over their addiction. At the very least, this is an attempt to stop fooling oneself that they can think their way out of it and just try harder. We are self-deceived and practiced at lying to ourselves and others. Because of this, we need to get to know our lies and seek truth. Lies are the language of Satan's kingdom. When we turn from lies and when we speak truth, we are claiming an allegiance to another kingdom. Get ready to spot the lies at each stage of the addiction cycle. Secondly, recognize that there is a Christ within. Unlike the 12-step groups in that model, we are not helpless. We have a divine helper in the spirit of Christ who lives in us and fights against the sin nature. We need to be vigilant about our sin, but perhaps even more, we need to sharpen our vision for our union in Christ to harness the power available to fight for victory over our addictions. Much of this off-season work happens every moment, whether you realize it or not. We spend a lot of time unpacking the problem of our hearts, which are primed to worship something, and quickly turn to worshiping other things in the creation rather than our creator. We've spoken about how our understanding of ourselves is being molded moment by moment by these ruling desires. In his book, You Are What You Love, James K.A. Smith argues that our life practices have an enormous shaping influence on what we functionally believe will bring us happiness. If we look at our lives, for many of us, worship of God is compartmentalized to Sundays, to Friday nights, a few moments in the morning. If an alien were to come to Earth and report back on our religious practices, they would probably talk about our mega church gatherings at the King of Prussia Mall, our quiet times on Facebook, our meditations on Instagram, and our devotion to the little green men at Lincoln Financial Field. And this is a communion we're able to bring into our homes through our electric friends, which is probably a demigod in its own right. When we speak of battling addictions, it's necessary to take an honest 
inventory of the many things which have captured your heart and served to damper your hunger for the living God. The battle is often lost by the time it comes to your triggers. Like Belshazzar feasting before the fall of Babylon, we expect our hearts to feast on the counterfeit gods and are surprised to not be able to tap into the power of the gospel when the battle reaches our door. We need to constantly take inventory of what is capturing us and develop instead practices which allow us to take in, meditate on, and taste the joy of our identity in Christ. This primarily comes in the form of worship, discipleship, and spiritual disciplines. Not that sexy, but we have a hard time doing them. Opening your eyes to the spiritual battle will make you more ready for the war. We need to know our enemy's strategy and where there are planted minefields. Get to know your triggers. Are there certain situations, times of day, circumstances, people, places that are associated with your besetting sin? As we have seen, these can happen even when you're not aware of them. Think and pray about the way the Uh, the Lord may provide escape in those situations? What hedges of protection can we put in place to prevent this domino effect from happening? This is where things like accountability software, limiting internet use, in particular situations, staying away from the bar or the buffet comes in. Some people with particular addictions may even benefit from medication, and that can be wise. It doesn't make it a disease. We involve others into our patterns. This might be the form of an accountability partner or a counselor. We identify these external triggers, but we also prepare for the internal tempting thoughts. Learn your usual suspects. Get to know what lies that come readily to your mind once triggered. Your brain is pumping with dopamine, the reward chemical, giving you the feeling that there's something life-giving on the other side of that next drink, website, episode of Stranger Things, second Krispy Kreme donut. Don't minimize these thoughts as harmless. They are vying for your heart's affection. Lies show up in the form of, I'll have just one. I can stop at any time. I'm not like those addicts over there. I don't need to do it every day. Learn to bring to mind the sweetness of your relationship with Christ. Pray with Paul that, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Know your personal gospel story and have a couple of pictures of your receiving his grace burned into your mind and readily accessible. If we are walking in our identity and union in Christ, we imbibe in the blessings of having everything we need in him. To rearrange a C.S. Lewis metaphor, we bask in our memories at a holiday at the sea so that we can scoff at the idea of playing in the mud. We need spiritual dopamine to compete with the false promises of our idols. The closer we get to indulgence, the harder it becomes to utilize these more heady cognitive weapons. We need to prepare ahead of time 
even more so, so that we can react reflexively when we notice things moving closer in this direction. It's like practicing fire drills. Instead of having to think about what to do when the building is on fire, we embed these responses. SUD, seemingly unimportant decisions, are like smelling the smoke before we feel the heat of the fire. Maybe I'll just hang out with the boys, but not drink with them. If I have just one, I can prove that I'm in control and not addicted. Learn what your patterns are so that you can throw the rope ladder out the window before the flames reach you. Create plans to be proactive at these times. Know that your heart is working overtime to make sin seem more palatable, perhaps even co-opting the gospel itself to serve its end. Confess to your accountability these secret thoughts and bring them into the light. But this side of the grave, we will continue to fall prey to the desires of the flesh. We will indulge. We know that Christians can and do sin and struggle with sin patterns for long periods of time. And this is not mutually exclusive with professing a faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture anticipates it, stating in 1 John, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. After we fall, we usually move right away into feeling defeated. We failed again. The glimmer of hope we held out for our clean streak was erased. During this time, we're more prone to have these defeated interpretations, and they only increase the likelihood that we're going to binge on that idol. Learn to anticipate the internal voices that typically begin to chime in when we're down. It's the, if you can't beat them, join them mentality. Remember that it was while we were sinners that Christ died for us, not while we were on a spiritual hot streak. Right here, in this moment of failure, we have the best opportunity to embrace our need for Jesus and for his gift of new life in him. How can you take ten looks at Jesus and for the one glance at the sin that's staring you right in front of your face? This is where we're meant to live out a lifestyle of repentance and faith. In the book, How People Change, it states, faith keeps us laying hold of the grace and mercy of Christ and thereby avoiding despair. Repentance keeps us facing our ongoing struggle with sin and thereby avoiding pride. This faith-driven repentance sees the biggest problem as you and possibly the hurt caused to others. It recognizes the sin beneath the sin which lies in the heart. And so we repent of this deeper sin in its attempts to build a life apart from Christ. When we spend a lot of time lamenting on our sin and feeling defeated, it betrays our underlying hope in ourselves and belief that we should be able to do better by our own strength. Guilt pours in to condemn us. 
And by flagellating ourselves with our punishing thoughts, we paradoxically increase the strength of the sin by keeping it in the center of our view instead of moving towards freedom from its bondage and accepting Jesus' full pardon found in turning to him. 1 John 3 states, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. We are prone to condemn ourselves, but in Christ, we are seen just as if we had fully obeyed, just as if we had never sinned. Our present sin is one more opportunity to embrace our need for a Savior from this body of death and to accept that he has already washed us clean. Be on guard for thoughts like, I'll never get over this, or I'm unlovable, I'm worthless. The truth is, you are all these things. Apart from Christ, you will never get over your sin problem, and you will never be able to be in the presence of a holy God. But because of your union with Christ, you are infinitely valuable to God. And he's continuing to work in your life so that we trust when Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. We might feel it's cheap grace to go so quickly to Jesus while the shockwaves of our sin quake are still being felt. And so we tend to feel we need to do something in order to get right again with God before moving forward. But this will only foster self-effort apart from the grace you have already been given. You will use part of your theological knowledge about a holy God to engage in self-atonement. Beware of this co-opted gospel. Avoid engaging these acts of penance until you have taken in and fully embraced the freedom from the power of sin in the complete act of atonement of Jesus. Believe that when he exclaimed on the cross, it is finished, that his death fulfilled the need for all the sins of the world, including the one you are still reeling from to be paid for. Out of that freedom, you may feel it's wise to engage in acts of worship, spending more time in the Word, or even healthy behaviors, not because they will make you clean, but because you already are clean and want to savor and protect your communion with Christ. Church, we need to become a place where we can fail well. To do this in community, we need to cultivate a gospel environment where judgment is nowhere to be found, where failure is expected, and where we are each there ready to point one another back to Christ with gentleness and love. If we make this a place where people receive social punishment for failing, then we're not living in gospel community. I wanted to spend a moment to address a common reason people can become addicted, which is to cover up a tremendous feeling of shame. On some level, most of us can identify with this. We all have a persona that we put forward for others to see, but a private self we feel ashamed of that if other people knew about this part of our lives. 
And in some cultures, this can be compounded, where the face that's presented to others needs to be maintained, both for ourselves, but also maybe for the respect of our families. Instead of being able to come before a God and others with our weaknesses and failings, we try to cover these and the, failings that pig- the feelings that piggyback along with them. It makes it harder to come forward in admitting our sin, even before God. But we see a Jesus who was born into shame among the farm animals. He spent his time on earth living with the outcasts, touching their wounds, speaking to them at the well when they were hiding from others' inspection and judgment. He ultimately took on the shame of our sins, was stripped, beaten, spit at, dressed up in mockery as a crown of thorns was plunged onto his head. And he died a criminal's death alongside of those who were actually guilty of crimes. He identified with those who carry shame so that they can identify with him. So they can have hope and worship even in the midst of brokenness and despair. Brothers and sisters, God does provide us an escape from our downward spiral. And we place our faith in him. In Jesus, our hearts will finally worship as they were made to. Spending this lifetime learning how to let his love lift us higher until one day that bliss will be fully consummated as we receive our heart's reward for eternity. Let's pray. Father God, um, we come before you probably feeling a bit dizzied by lots of information and concepts that still feel so up in the stratosphere, and we're here on earth feeling just probably still broken. Lord, we cry out to you, pray. Lord, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. We cry out to you saying, Lord, we want this all to be true. Help what you have done through Jesus be true for us in our lives. Help us to see and live and experience a life that has power over sin. We know it's not a light switch. We know it's not a quick fix. We know it is a path of walking slowly. But God, help us to stay on that path. Help us to look to you. And we can only do that through your spirit. We can only do that, Lord, through your spirit nudging us, guiding us, helping us turn away. We can only do that through the community that you've put in place. Lord, I pray that in this community, you will help each person to see themselves as the chief of all sinners and here not to judge, but to embrace those who are struggling and to see it as their role to help others feel freed to confess sin so that they can feel the freedom of the gospel because that's what we want too as the chief of all sinners. We want to live in that freedom and not in shame and despair. God, it's against our human nature, so we need you to do that. We pray that you give us a supernatural vision, but the humility to walk, even in our brokenness, 
clinging on to you. So we pray in your son's name. Amen.